Welcome to the Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chang. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Food and Faith Podcast. This is Derek Weston. Today's guest is Talitha Aho. Talitha is a friend of mine from my seminary days, and I was thrilled to talk to her about her new book, Deep Waters, Spiritual Care for Young People in a Climate Crisis. Though the focus of our show is on food, we always like to point to food's role in larger conversations about ecology and creation care, and Talitha's book helps us do just that. Uh, Talitha is a chaplain at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital, Oakland, and a minister member of the Presbytery of San Francisco. Recently, she served as a pastor at Montclair Presbyterian Church, the largest Presbyterian congregation in Oakland, where she was responsible for children and youth programs. She has been in ministry to the young since she was old enough to qualify as a chaperone, both at church camps and churches on the East Coast and with the nonprofit organization Children of Uganda. Before we start, I want to remind everyone that you can support the show through our Patreon. Go to www.patreon.com slash foodandfaithpodcast. Also, if you go to foodandfaith.org and hit the Hire Us tab, you can learn more about The Color of Food, a six-week adult ed course for faith communities on food and race. Now, let's listen to my conversation with Talitha. All right, we are here with Talitha. Talitha, thank you for being on the Food and Faith podcast. Yay, thank you. I'm excited um, to be here. I'm excited. I'm excited that we're getting a chance to reconnect after so long. So we like to ask our our our, our guests this first question. What is your geography? What are the places, music, foods, culture that have shaped you to be the person that you are? Yeah, I come from New York City, so I my initial geography was very much shaped by concrete, and uh, I every chance I could get would love to go to the country. I just dreamed of living in the country and read books about people who lived in the country. Then when I went to seminary, I, I came to California, where I met Derry, <laughs> where, the, where the microclimates are, are so diverse and, and the land is so different from, from one block to the next. And right now, I am in a man, Presbyterian word for a parsonage, next to the church that I will be serving for just another week and a half before I leave. So I, I've been here for years, and this parsonage in this church is in a tiny bit of a valley in the hills of Oakland, and this is, it's pretty close to the epicenter of the 91 Oakland Hills firestorm, which really shaped this neighborhood. That was one of my first weeks at the church when I came about nine years ago. They were doing a memorial for one of the anniversaries of that firestorm. And it's amazing how much that shaped this neighborhood in terms of coming together. It's a really lovely neighborhood. It feels like a neighborhood. My neighbors lend us car seats and, you know, like it's very neighborly and exquisitely sweet. I have the only food garden that I can see for for in the in the neighborhood oh there's one there's one about a mile away that I notice but mostly they're like exquisitely little landscaped things <laughs> and my 
a neighbor, but I have I have a neighbor across the street who who grows fava beans as well. So, but I have a front garden, and when I moved into the manse of the church, I was like oh, feeling insecure. I was like, I want to grow things in this front garden, but everybody around here just has such cute landscaping. What am I going to do? But it turned out well because I have this like festive front garden where something is always changing, and the kids at the at the nursery school call me the tomato lady because I grow cherry tomatoes right up against the fence and I and I'll tell them you can have one if you want it and they just think that's so exciting (laughs) so I'm the tomato lady Uh, and yeah I have grief about the fact that I'll be leaving this church in this neighborhood I'll be going to live in Berkeley and I will not initially have a garden although we will work on that and see about getting getting maybe some access to to hooking up with a community garden or see what we'll do or, you know, bring some plants in pots. So that, that's what, that's, that's, those are some things about my geography. What else do you want to know about my geography? <laughs> what else do you think is important to know about what, what has shaped you and, and the work, what shaped the work that you're doing? Yeah, I guess, I guess right now I'll say that the, the, the land is pretty dry. Um, California is having a, a pretty, pretty bad drought. Don't expect it to go away soon. And yeah, when I move to Berkeley, I will be moving out of the most acute fire danger zone. And so that feels like, you know, where I live now, when fire season happens, they just shut down whole entire neighborhoods of power so that a tree doesn't take a a, a wire down that's mm-hmm. a really not technical term but you know <laughs> a tree could take a wire down and yeah. then we could have a fire it but it's interesting because when the power company does that then all the neighbors who you know can't stand to be without electricity startup generators which are more dangerous and we actually did have a generator explode and burn two houses to the ground during Mm. the last fire season which was terrifying but if that had taken the whole neighborhood out it would not have been the utilities fault it would have been the homeowners fault so that's a weird shifting of responsibility that happens during during our fire seasons yeah yeah, I could see that playing a huge role in in thinking about ecological issues as you're thinking about seeing the real-time impacts of 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 climate change on your environment. Yeah. So, let's let's just kind of jump right into the book here. The book is called In Deep Water: Spiritual Care for Young People in a Climate Crisis. And just the title of itself is incredibly evocative. And so I want to I want to start with what led you to write this book? Why did this book need to be written from your perspective? Yeah, my husband is a really creative guy and he felt like we were missing something in our lives and it was creativity and let's have a writing group. And I had such a bad attitude about it. I was like, oh, <laughs> I mean, I write sermons, I write newsletter articles. Oh, do we really want to write on a Friday night? But, but, I, but he really wanted to do it. And so I just said, okay, but I'm, I'm mostly there for the snacks and the socializing. But what they did was this great, great method where we would 
assemble around the table with all our laptops or paper if you were doing paper and put a timer on for 40 minutes and go just write. And then at the end of 40 minutes, we would share what we'd written with one another. And so I started doing it despite my bad attitude. And it was only a couple months into that when I hit on starting to write about the teenagers in my youth group and the experiences they had they had had and how they saw our fire seasons and all of a sudden I sat up straight and that felt like oh this is worth writing about this needs to be written about and it's what was interesting is that that suddenly I had something that was longer form than a sermon Mm. because you know we can write sermons pretty regularly and you never want to preach more than 20, 25 minutes, even if it's really important. <laughs> but, but I could tell that this book was, was going to go so many different directions and it was, and, and it touched on themes of creativity and imagination. And then it was like, Oh, sci-fi, I got to mention sci-fi. And then it was like, well, I've got to read sci-fi if I'm going to write this book. And, and I'd already finished my way through all of Ursula K. Le Guin. And then I determined to do everything Octavia E. Butler wrote. And, and, uh, you know, so there, there's just a, a, a lot of good, good, juicy topics started boiling up and just feeling like, wow, I could, I could really swim for a long time in these kind of waters. Mm. Yeah. I, I want to come back to the sci-fi part in a minute, but yeah. what was it that you were hearing from your young people from your youth group yeah what were were they saying that was that was so deeply impactful about the way that they were seeing again sort of the the real-time effects of climate change they were and are adapting in a way that older people are not young people may fight climate change but in a way the, at least these particular ones have accepted it as fact. They're, they're not saying that we shouldn't do everything we can to stop it, but they don't have this kind of binary future where like, is everything okay or is everything not okay? Oh, they know everything is not okay in the future. And they're looking at shades of not okay they're looking Mm. at like what is my future going to be like like how will I be surviving terrible things Um, not not whether they will be but how will they be and and one of the the most important early conversations I had with them was about God like what is God doing in all of this is God just throwing up their hands and being like all right time to destroy the earth I guess have fun Mm -hmm. like decreate what I created here you go I give you permission like is God really handing over the reins that much to us or is God going to intervene and how would God intervene and is it my job to make God intervene like is that Mm -hmm. me is that in my hands like what are we going to do and so that that brought up some radical ideas about how do you see God those adaptations I guess I I guess I want to ask this I guess the way I want to ask this question do you see those adaptations that they're making are those outgrowths of hopefulness or is that or those outgrowth 
growths of hopelessness? That's a really tricky question to ask about the younger generations because us older generations always want them to have hope. Like we're going to be okay as long as they have hope. And do they hope that, you know, do they hope that we're going to have like just human progress? Like one generation is going to get better than the other? No. But do they still think it's worth fighting for and you know do they do they still have something to hope for it's 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 a different narrative than the kind of naivete of some of us older generations where we've seen well oh and now we have the internet and things are getting better and and now we we you know no they're they're not they're not they're not used to good news like i i grew up my dad was a news writer. And so at the end of the 80s, it was like wonderful, happy revolutions happening all over the world. Of course, that's, they were not all wonderful and happy, but my dad was telling me about the good ones. He was telling me about like the end of apartheid and and, and the Velvet Revolution. He was there in Prague when the Velvet Revolution happened. Mm. And it was like so victorious and happy and like what what could what could happen to the world but we're just going to get better and better and better folks but we we can't be that we can't be that naive anymore things are not getting better and better and better there are some things that get better and like a game of whack-a-mole human sinfulness find some other way to oppress and you know yeah there's so they have this different perspective and i don't think it's hopeless, but it certainly doesn't doesn't have the same naive hope that that we might have had that as long as people keep doing a nice thing every once in a while, things will keep going for the better. Yeah. Right? And I think that's actually I think that's kind of healthy. I think that's a more nuanced version of health. And I, I often feel like so often what's missed in these what's missing in these conversations is nuance and i think that that feels like a nuanced response to what's happening in the world yeah and uh, the, the the youth in my group are are very non-binary in just many ways and so they're not they're not going to look for a, a binary future like good or bad no so, so i mean uh, and I, I i did pick up on this in, in reading the book what role does does science fiction play in in thinking about how we find a way forward and 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 that and that idea that like you know so much of the media that we've absorbed i think our generation and and younger is people making their way through the dystopian mm-hmm. they're people trying to figure out you know what they're going to do sur- to survive and finding community and things like that through the hardship of of the post-apocalyptic does that does that play into their thinking does that play into their their worldview as is that is that present when you have these conversations um sure how present it is to the teenagers like you know some of them like sci-fi and some of them don't right sure, it's, it course. is a personal taste but what I what I've come to see is that future building and world building those are all acts of the imagination and there's 
there's there's acts of the imagination in the Bible when the prophets are like describing the city that comes down from heaven and and it's you know and the gates are always open and that's a sign of justice and we're just you know imagining like utopia building is part of the religious imagination when we think about heaven or we think about what is the kingdom of God to which we are called. And so playing with utopias and dystopias is really important to just figure out like what can we put our hearts and minds to? Like what what are we what what kind of work do we need to do in this dystopic society we find ourselves in right now? Where could the cure be? And, you know, it's always lazy writing in science fiction if you find that somebody invents a device that fixes things. That's like, <laughs> oh, yay, and now we have this, which, I mean, all the problems go away. That's like, that should not be a major plot turn. Like if you're if you're creating a world, maybe you start with like an amazing technology that makes things go well. But it's it, if that's the major plot point, then that's that's not great writing because that doesn't that doesn't call people to do do something active. I great science fiction asks us to become braver, bolder, more creative and and to and to look at things imagining not the positive future of the previous generation but to imagine a radically different way to get to a positive future. So, yeah. I I really liked NK Jemison's Broken Earth trilogy and the first book starts with I, I might get the words a little bit wrong but the 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 sentence it starts with is like, well, let's start with the ending of the world, shall, shall we? The, the world, let's start with the end of the world, at least this end of this world. And then and then the story happens from there. It's a, it's a non-binary future. The world ends mm. and then a new world is born. So. Mm. Which, I mean, is, is actually pretty in line with our theology and there will be a new heavens and a new earth (laughs) (laughs) it's actually a fairly theologically sound idea in a conversation i had recently there was a some research cited about younger generations and part of it was about how you know there's a lot of a lot of younger folks are saying they don't want to have kids because the the future that's ahead of them and more strikingly to me was the notion that they have a sense that older generations don't care about the fact that the world is being devastated and that they're yep. being left with that world. Is that something that yeah. you hear a lot, that, that there's a sense that, that older generations just don't care? Yeah, it's, it's a generational betrayal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and when... Yeah, I, I remember there was a grown-up at one of the climate strikes saying some, holding a sign that was like, the the kids are great, they're going to save us all. And people were kind of yelling at them. They're like, no, <laughs> like, you have wealth and power. Like, you know, people listen to you because you're a grown-up. Like, why are you waiting for us to do it? I mean, it doesn't feel like support 
for a grown-up to stand at a sign, hold a sign at a climate march saying, listen to the, no, like just do the work for us. And also I think that there's this way in which the young people need to not have all the work on their shoulders because they need to be organizing networks of mutual aid that are going to help them like survive things. And, and so they really need those of us who are older to be doing the, you know, boycotts and the divestments and the, and the yelling in the street, like they need us to take the heaviest burden of that. That's only appropriate because they, they have other things. They have to, to be building a new world in the shell, shell of the old. Right. And so it's not, they don't, they're not just hoping for us to, be on board and help out like they really need us to shoulder a lot of this work and to see people not doing that is betrayal and it's it's just it's very disillusioning and disconnecting it breaks relationships and and if there are people here listening listening to this podcast who have churches that lament that they don't have young people in them like this is the number one question. Like, well, what is your church doing about climate change? Like, mm. because if they, if you are not talking, acting, doing on climate change, the youth will not feel able to connect because you're silent on the most important issue. To them. Yeah. That's, I, I, I hope people hear that and hear it loudly and clearly yeah. that if you are not talking about this issue, you're not talking about the thing that is most pressing to young people. So with with the realities of climate change, with these feelings of generational betrayal, what are some of the spiritual care things that we can be doing that you outlined in the book? What can we be doing to actually care for these younger generations to let them know that one, that, that we're, we're not ab- abandoning them and two, yeah. that we we want to help them have the resources, the inner resources, as well as the external resources that they need to survive what's to come. Yeah, yeah. So I'm bringing kind of a, a chaplaincy lens to this. And, you know, it's kind of the, the spiritual care that, that you might get from a professional chaplain in a hospital, but I'm trying to articulate it in a way that everybody can do it. You don't need, you don't need that training to do it. Like, what is it? It's good listening. It is good listening that loves the person and affirms them that like, that raises up, oh, you know, I like this about you because I'm paying attention to you and I'm noticing these things and I like this. So that, that like, first of all, just gives them a lot of love and then listening that clarifies value that, sometimes you'll talk with somebody and they just seem to talk in circles and like, or, or they just have no energy to go anywhere because they can't figure out what to do or where to go. And so they're like the kind of listening we can provide to them. The spiritual care is this seems most important to you. Yeah. You've talked over and over about the carbon footprint. Shall we, Oh, shall we calculate our carbon footprint? Let's try to do that. You know, like, like, I see that this is important to you. Can we try to do it? You know, like that kind of accountability and, you know, we're in this together. Let's calculate our whole church's carbon footprint. Let's, 
let's do an audit like on, on the values that are most important. But then the, the hardest one is is listening through conflict and providing spiritual care to people through conflict when they're angry at each other and when they feel like their grandma just betrayed them by not caring about climate change or whatever. That's the hardest. And it's, you know, if you can get somebody's trust to be able to be there for them in that moment, it's really, really good work, really good spiritual care work to be there for somebody when one person's blaming the other and and what can you do you can say things like well sounds like you did this and you did that and your feelings are hurt this way that's kind of like holding a mirror back to the people so each person can see like what's mine what's yours where do we what are we sharing use the the metaphor there of like swim lanes like this is my lane this is your lane I can't control what you're doing in your lane, but please don't come into my lane and kick me in the head. You know, mm. that's just defining healthy boundaries between mm. people. So those are some of the, the skills, but overall, I will say like, don't be intimidated by the psychological things I say about that. Like, what is it? It's good listening. It's caring about mm. people. It's, it's caring and affirming them. Yeah. Mm. I think one of the things that you're naming, and maybe this is the most immediate thought that would come to people's minds when having this conversation, is that you're going to have to deal with a lot of anger. Mm. And, and that there's, there's going to be, you know, again, there's this conversation of, of generational betrayal, but I would imagine that in some of these conversations, there's also, there's, there's anger with older generations. Mm-hmm. There's probably anger with the church and mm-hmm. anger with God. Yeah. And I imagine that, that that shows up in all different kinds of ways when you're having these conversations. Yes. Yes. And the most important thing we can do is deepen our capacity to stay in those conversations. Mm. Because too often <laughs> nice Christian ladies, especially. No, <laughs> no, I don't have to, I do not have to single out the ladies uh or or any like just there's this there's this like feeling of just oh church is a nice place and we don't do ugly feelings but guys we have to do ugly feelings like we're we're talking about really important stuff we need to deepen our capacity to be there through angry discussions through despairing discussions not to jump in and try to fix them or like like take them out of those feelings but just to if if you can do just deepen our personal capacity to sit with people in intensity because this generation isn't going to do anything but intensity, honestly. Mm -hmm. And, and if churches stay, stay super polite and, you know, hold on to those kind of those don't rock any boats values if we don't have the like value of real talk, guys, let's do real talk. Then, then the the youth, the young people are not going to find their way in that church. I mean, and that feels like a, a good rule of thumb for 
a lot of the hard conversations mm -hmm. that we need to have right now. I mean, whether these are conversations about race, whether these are conversations about gender issues, whether these are totally. conversations about politics, like we have to be able to like stand pat while absorbing the anger that yeah. might be coming our direction. Yes. And, yeah. and being willing to understand that that anger is justified in lots of cases, yeah. that anger is coming from a place that, you know, is valid and yeah. and and our ability to stay in a space where someone is is hurling their anger at us communicates our our love and it communicates our willing to stay in the fight with them yes 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 so practically what are what are young people doing to to cope what are they doing to make sense i also just have to like just take a second and say like i've never felt older than having this conversation yeah <laughs> like all of a yeah. sudden like i keep i keep referencing the young people and like and i'm like i am one i am not the young people anymore and two like there are some generational things that you know i my my oldest is 14 so like there are some there's a there's a big gap between me as a 43 year old and the 14 and younger crowd that are my yeah. children yeah. like of, yeah. of people who have a language that I feel like I don't fully know and understand yeah yeah and I'm I'm the generation in between I'm only a few years younger than you but I'm an elder millennial and yeah. people still talk about millennials as if we're you know it was still like wearing mittens and like, <laughs> like playing with playstations, but like heels are not young anymore. Like, no. and Gen X is you, you guys, you're you are full on grown ups. We, we all are full are. on grown ups, and, uh, and Generation Z is coming of age. Like, they're some of them are 25 now, some of them are younger, but some of them are 25, and they're you know getting houses and you know some of them are getting married and having kids some of them are not but their generation z is coming of age and those of us who are <laughs> one or two generations older really have to make some room yeah so so back to my 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 original question before i distracted myself as i often do what are they doing to cope what are they doing kind of mentally and spiritually to cope and what are they doing that's kind of practical and tangible to to cope with the realities that they're seeing yeah i think they're they're finding their ways some are connecting to good organizations where you know they it's just something better to do on a Saturday morning is protest rather than go to brunch or whatever and sleep in. Like, so, and, and, and some of them seem to be finding a very church-like connection in their, their protest groups, their activist organizations. Yeah, they're taking it one step at a time. I mean, a lot of them are busy getting degrees that are going to help them do the work that they feel called to do. And, and a lot of them are just taking one day at a time and trying and going to therapy. And, you know, it's not, it's not an easy time to come of age. So everybody's got their different ways. And the one thing that I can 
offer is that those who find community seem to be doing the doing the best. Mm. Yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So this book is is not written necessarily for the young people. It's written for us old folks who are caring for young people. Yes. So how how would you how would you want churches to use this book? I think there's a lot of great potential applications for it. But yeah. how would you how would you like to see churches use this book? Yeah, I think if you've so if you have like a youth group, then get your youth advisors and your you know parents and grandparents of the youth, the the the, 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 the core group of stakeholders who care about them. Get them to read it together, just to get get your mind into that that place where they are. And if your church doesn't have youth, this is a really important book to help do some of the work of like, okay, we we might not have the young people in our congregation because a lot of them are not there, but we want to care about them. We want to minister to them, whether we find them in our community or, or we're just helping ourselves be better parents and grandparents. I think that there's a really important niche there for kind of interpreting the you the young people to their communities that that may it just it makes it a little easier for the young people that they don't have to say this over and over again because it's exhausting and tiresome and like you know venting your anger and despair is really heavy work so if this book can kind of go before them and do the work for them that'll make things easier Yeah. I think that's I think that's one of the great things that that you've offered in this book is that you you're you're doing some of that translation work. Yeah. Because I think before before some churches are either going to even going to be able to engage with young people around this conversation, they really need to have some things explained to them about where is the mindset? Where yeah. is the where where are the attitudes? And actually, this might be a good place for you to read that section if you want to jump in and do that. But I think I think you're you're offering to older generations like this is the reality that young people find themselves in, and and you do so in a way that I think doesn't pull any punches and says this is really what what they're feeling. Yeah. Yeah, so I have a story that might be good to share. This is about being a hospital chaplain and seeing a 22-year-old patient who had a really bad eating disorder. She weighed like 64 pounds and it was just so hard for me to visit her. It was so hard and it really eventually, I mean, it took a long time to digest how, how this does it made any sense to me? But like the the severity of her disorder works for describing the severity of climate change. Yeah. We need complex metaphors. So shall I read? Yeah, please. Yeah, please do. I'll, I'll start on page 53. A, an addictive disease like anorexia just about fits. Eating disorders are progressive, difficult to treat, sometimes fatal. Their diseases in one way and addictions in another. The powerful mix of therapies must come together just right before an eating disorder can be cured. From medical treatment and supervision through all kinds of therapy to healthy community support, some cases cannot be cured and we cannot always pinpoint why. And even if someone is able to change and heal for a while, 
that can be sucked back down as cruelly and arbitrarily as a cancer relapse. We don't know enough about how to cure eating disorders. We need more studies, more insight, more treatment options. Our best efforts do not guarantee success. The climate emergency is likewise caused by a complex of addictive behaviors and conditions. We are plainly hooked on fossil fuels. The effort needed to wrench ourselves free from our well-established systems of reliance is formidable. If we're to free and heal our climate, we need a lot of different kinds of therapies. We need healthier alternatives to invest in new infrastructure, new power plants, new and smarter electric grids. We need greener cities, not built around the needs of the automobile, but built for lower intensity ways of living. We need to strip away the political power held by fossil fuel companies and put people power to work for the health of the planet. We need political will from international coalitions to community organizations. We need new technologies. And although they are statistically less important than the structural kinds of therapies, we also need a host of person-by-person -person commitments and sacrifices. Eating less meat, foregoing flying, reducing food waste or waste in general, getting off the plastic train. We are in deep, deep need. And our best efforts are certainly not guaranteed to succeed. Addictions from eating disorders to fossil fuels usually come with protective circles around them. There are circles of denials, the thoughts and rationalizations that let us believe things are better than they are. And they tell us, well, it's okay to skip dinner now and then, ignoring the fact that it's been every night for a month. They tell us, it's okay, climate change might not be as bad as the scientists say, ignoring the fact that it is already proved to be worse than initially predicted. We may be even more familiar with how denial functions around alcoholism. Denial keeps us from looking deep into the abyss and realizing how out of control we are. Denial tells us that we are in control, that we can stop whenever we want to, and that we will be sure to put on the brakes before we crash, but our reactions might not be quick enough, especially if we are driving up the wrong side of the highway and our senses are dulled by drink and our world is surely in the wrong lane right now, hurtling toward disaster. Generation Z stands back and watches the older generations drunk driving down the road of ecological denial with the kind of dumbfounded stare you might get from a kid asked to believe that it is it's really okay if Uncle Jake is just like that when he drinks. They are not ready to take up that mantle of protective denial we would pass down to. We build protective circles around our addiction disease complexes, habits of behavior keep things as they are. Because of these encircling habits, if you wanna unhook from an addiction, everything around it will probably need to be changed too. You know, the little things that kept our unhealthy lives in balance. Maybe someone used to need a few cocktails to unwind after a hard day of work, it was just part of the routine. But now that they are, quote, on the wagon, they may need to find a new way to deal with the fact that nine to five capitalism is actually deadening their soul. Maybe adding a kickboxing class will do, or maybe they will need to find a new job. Likewise with the climate crisis, perhaps we used to take vacations to distant and beautiful places to unwind after a hard season. But if we wean ourselves off the jet fuel bottle, 
we're going to need to find new ways to cope with the fact that our rat race lives and ugly neighborhoods are dragging us down. I think I'm going to stop right there. I think that's a good place to stop. And I appreciate that section so much. One, again, because you're not pulling any punches and you are using a couple of incredibly powerful, incredibly relevant, incredibly relatable metaphors uh, to situations and experiences that people can say, yes, this is, this is, this is where we are. This is where we've gotten ourselves to. This is, this is, and I think those, those to describe the climate crisis as a circle, as, as cycles of addiction, Mm -hmm. which is accurate. Yeah. exactly what it is. Yeah, uh, credit to Ched Myers, who was the first person I heard say that, that we're hooked on fossil fuels like that. Yeah. And and, and it's and it's not just because of we're hooked on fossil fuels because we're hooked on all of the conveniences that they afford mm-hmm. and 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 the various lifestyle changes that we we often fool ourselves into saying that we can't live without or that we deserve. Well, and the structural changes too, just, I mean, mm. the power plants, like, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, I just think that we can't, we can't sugarcoat this. There are some people who will only be able to hear the harshest, most extreme language yeah. around these things before yeah. it really sinks in. It's yeah. important that you speak in those ways. Yeah, we need to say that the world is really sick just really sick right now. And it's not the kind of disease that has a simple cure. I mean, are there any diseases that have simple cures? Maybe, I don't know. I've mostly encountered diseases that have terribly complicated cures and and cures that are, you know, maybe not ever gonna bring you back to full health, but it's still worth trying. And I think it's especially important because there are, let's be honest, there are organizations that are speaking this frankly about the severity of the climate crisis, but very few of them are the church. Yeah. Very few of them are are faith communities. And we need to now start stepping up and saying these things with knowing that we have theological resources to speak to the, the severity of, of the crisis that we're facing. Yeah, I feel like religious people should be ready to do this because we just, you know, we have a deep faith. Like we, we have our convictions that it's worth doing acts of love, even if they're useless, you know, <laughs> even if like that, that it is worth it to show up and do small things with great love. Like that takes that takes spiritual stamina. And those of us who have built that through other religious faith work should be showing the way to others who are really floundering, like, how do I, how do I show up for this hard work? So we, yeah, if we can really dig deep, we have an important thing we, we can do in the movement. And I think that your book gives a resource for that. You give faith language, spiritual language to this, this fight and to strengthen ourselves so that we can we can help guide the young people who are in our lives through the the hard things that are to come. Yeah. 
So with all of these things, with all of these hard conversations that need to happen, with the hard realities that we see around us, with the challenges that are, are, are real and pressing on, on us, what gives you hope? Hope that doesn't ignore these challenges, but hope that, that gives you what you need to continue to do the work that you're doing. Yeah, so... It's going to be pretty geeky, but I'm going to tell the story of the Carpathia that is the boat that heard the Titanic's distress signal mm. and responded. And they heard it and responded when they were four hours away. And so, I mean, if you hear this, the ship is sinking now and you're four hours away, do you give up? Like, if we're thinking about a binary situation, you can be like, eh, we won't be able to save them all. But they went anyway. Of course they did, because there's lives at stake. And so they pushed that ship past its top capacity and got there in like in, in like less than four hours, in, in closer to three hours. And and they turned their entire ship into a in, into a into a hospital, into a rescue zone. And they saved so many, 700 people or so, so many people. So they didn't do the entire rescue. They didn't make everything good, but they threw everything they had at the rescue and they got there before before caution would have advised, you know, they were, they were going full tilt around the same icebergs that, that sunk the Titanic. Like they were, they were careening through very dangerous waters with their lifeboats already hanging out over the side, ready, ready to drop. So they didn't succeed. They didn't save 2000 people, but they saved 700. And so the courage that, that can come from stories like that of uh, yeah there's 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 places in which it is definitely too late and we're still going to show up and throw everything we have at it and that's what we got to do for the climate crisis that's you know just everything we have at it all of our faith and all of our you know, spiritual practices that keep us a little bit sane in a very unsane world, you know, all, all our spiritual learnings, all of our ability to care for one another and build loving community. And yeah, there's, there's still going to be many tears shed. We're going to see ecosystems lost. We're going to see cities lost. We're going to lose people that matter to us in fires and floods. That is what's going to happen in the future. And still, we can be the ship that comes to the rescue. It's a beautiful image. It's sobering, and it's beautiful, and it's real, and it's hopeful. And, and I think, you know, thinking of our faith communities as, as hospitals, as rescue centers, as, mm -hmm. as places of refuge and sanctuary, I think that's a really good reorientation for a lot of our um, 
a lot of our communities. So how tell people how they can find your book, tell people how they can connect with you, tell them anything that you would like to tell them. Yeah. In Deep Water, Spiritual Care for Young People in a Climate Crisis is published by Fortress Press. You can buy it on their website using the code AHO30 for 30% off. But you can also get it at Amazon and at IndieBound and probably your local bookstore. It's it's on, you know, major distribution centers. So you can ask for it at your local bookstore. I love it when people ask for it at their local bookstore. And uh, you can also look, you can also request it at your local library. It's an easier process than you, than you might think. Just tell a librarian about this book. And you can connect with me, Talitha Amadea Aho on, on social media. My handle is Rev Tahoe, R-E-V-T-A-H-O-E, Tahoe, like the lake because that's cool. And I really look forward to hearing from listeners how the book might touch your life and affect your ministry. Excellent. Talitha, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I'm so grateful for you. I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing. And I hope that you'll I hope that you'll write more and that you'll come back and talk about more books. Um, it's, just... such, it's such a thrill to be talking with you, Derek. And I, I love, I love the, the, the food and faith movement and, and all the work you do. I'm so, so happy to be a little part of it. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. And I'm grateful for all that you're doing. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith Podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, The Garden Church, and The Keep Until. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org. <laughs>